This is hell. Where the coolest artists and musicians get their news, which says a lot about artists and musicians. This is hell. This week on This is Hell, we are playing the best of 2022, as chosen by our listeners with a little help from the staff. We started by playing a conversation on sex worker activism with Dr. Heather Berg, which apparently... Some people were very upset about the fact that there are sex workers whatsoever. Who knew? We then played our discussion with Dr. Laura Malden on the disabled uh, hacking of our ableist world. In a few minutes, we will share the third interview in the Best of 2022 series, our interview with one of our all-time favorite This Is Hell guests, and that is historian Gerald Horn, who was on the show this past July to discuss his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. How do we know he is one of your all-time favorite guests? Because every year Gerald has been on the show, beginning in 2018, you, our listening audience, have selected our conversations with him as one of the best every year he has ever been on our show. So, all-time favorite This Is Hell guest Gerald Horn is the interview we will be playing today. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan here in Chicago, across Illinois, and throughout the Great Lakes region. I think it's going to be going all the way to the East Coast. Forecasters are predicting a blizzard over the next few days. My unwife and I are supposed to be driving five and a half hours to north-central Michigan Stay for a couple nights. Then we are scheduled to drive from there for three and a half hours to southeastern Michigan. And as of now, I have no idea when we will be driving or if we will be leaving Chicago at all due to the weather uh, advisories and conditions. So, Dan, have the weather predictions affected your holiday travel plans? Because I know you're supposed to be going to southern Illinois. Well, we call it the middle. We'll call yeah. it East Central Illinois. But anyway, uh, I don't know. We're going to see how it goes because we're going to do it on Monday. Mm. So I'm hoping it'll be kind of salted up be done by, by then. then. When are you due to be at the family function? When, uh, when are you supposed to be? Friday? Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a bad idea. <laughs> it does seem like a really bad idea. I had a lot of people trying to talk me out of it last night or trying to change Just our schedule. Just remember previous times you saw your family. It's going to be about like that. Sure. Yeah, sure. But if you can't go because of the weather, what would you do otherwise? I don't bundle up, uh, put uh, some of those um, burning logs on the YouTube. <laughs> I, I do like those. That's when my TV gets the hottest, too. It's really It's the weird. funniest thing. <laughs> it's odd that that yeah. happens. Uh, right now, I have no idea what we will be doing. If we decide to go, we have to drive east along the southern coast of Lake Michigan through northern Indiana, which is always bad, and along the eastern shoreline of Lake Michigan, all of which gets what is known as lake effect snow, where storms pick up massive amounts of precipitation off of the lake, and wind gusts uh, increase, making for what can be horrible driving conditions. But if we are unable to travel at all and are forced to stay in Chicago, really, it's not so bad. I mean, I love my family, and I'm looking forward to seeing them and celebrating with them, but a week at home alone with my non-spouse, that also sounds freaking awesome. And to be honest, driving in a blizzard in our 2006 Sentra that has over 120,000 miles on it, that does not sound like fun. Have you ever driven through Lake Effect Snow in northern Indiana? No, I don't think I have. Ugh. 
never go east during a snowstorm, man. It's like the uh, snowflakes are flying at you. It's like daggers flying right at your car. It's very, it's very frightening, and you end up singing songs to try to keep your mind off the fact that you are in imminent, da- imminent danger. White knuckle driving. Yes, it is white knuckle driving. Uh, but far more important than any of that, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is the proverbial worst gift you can get during the holiday season is a lump of coal. But who knows where to buy a lump of coal anymore? In these modern times, what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays? Do you have your own answer for this? Worst gift? I don't know. Maybe like uh, one of those steel traps that like cartoon foxes are always getting stuck in. <laughs> that would attack me as I, I got up, you know, excited for the morning, and then it would hit my um, ankle. A bear trap? You're saying an yeah, ac- bear trap? An acme bear trap? Exactly, is like that the wily e. coyote would try to use. <laughs> exactly. That sounds. <laughs> That'd be up there anyway. It would be up there. Uh, the person, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. Wins, as always, your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But if you're going to email it to us, email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com. Uh, But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. The revolution will not be televised, but you can hear it live every week here on This Is Hell. And now our interview with listener favorite historian Gerald Horn on why Texas unbelievably can defy physics by both blowing and sucking at the same time. You are here, and this is hell. So, like most U.S. history, we were taught during our K-12 schooling, and sometimes even beyond that education, there are glaring gaps in what we learned. For instance, what were you taught about the history of Texas? Because even after getting an undergraduate degree in history, I never learned a damn thing about Texas other than what movies and other propaganda I've consumed regarding the Lone Star State, have told me. Sure, I've kept learning about U.S. history by speaking with past guests like the historian who will be joining us in a few minutes, but there's apparently a lot I do not know about the United States and its formative years and how Texas not only had a profound and lasting influence on the early years of the United States, but also why that single state has had such a huge impact on the nation's development as a whole, and often not in good ways. Even the so-called founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution were aware that Texas was not only a threat of to freedom and democracy as an independent republic, but would also be a threat to freedom and democracy if it were ever to become a state, which it has, and it currently is a threat politically to the nation entirely. We'll find out how Texas threatened freedom and why it remains a threat to democracy in a few minutes when we'll have the return of historian Gerald Horn, author of the new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas, Slavery, and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn is chair of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His research has addressed issues of racism and a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, war, and the film industry. Gerald has appeared on This Is Hell annually since 20. 18. On his most recent appearance last year, we talked with him about his then-just-released book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, 
Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Gerald's book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, made our 2020 list of favorite books featured here on This Is Hell, as decided by our listeners, as did his 2019 work, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of South uh, of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela, as well as his 2018 book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. You can hear all of those interviews, and I suggest you do. Even if you've heard it before, go back and listen to them again by going to thisishell.com and searching on Horn. That's H-O-R-N-E. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio This is hell. You may be missing a huge part of why fascism has always had an influence on the United States without knowing the history of Texas, both as a republic and then a later state, here to help us have a better understanding of both Texas and U.S. fascism returning to This is Hell. As historian Gerald Horn, author of The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of U.S. fascism. Gerald, welcome back to This Is Hell. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great having you on the show. I cannot tell you how much our listeners appreciate you being on the show. And uh, last year, the last time we had you on, we were talking about your book on the economy of boxing. And our producer at the time uh, was a boxer himself. He really enjoyed your book, and I gave him a copy. So thank you again for a completely different topic that you would normally be writing about. But that was that's really a fantastic book. And during the show, uh, our show I was at this weekend, so many people were asking about you, and especially that book. I was really surprised at how many people really enjoyed that book. So thank you again for being a guest on our show so many times. My pleasure. So you write, in 1859, Texas was a bleeding sore, or so thought Robert Neighbors, a so-called Indian agent, toiling on Washington's behalf. There was a clique led by John Baylor, soon to bathe in infamy during the forthcoming Civil War for demanding extermination of indigenous, who uh, sought to accelerate the deadly process. This clique formed an an organized conspiracy against the Indian policy of the federal government, which emphasized a reserve or reservation in the Lone Star State, No, insisted these opponents, indigenous should be simply liquidated. To demonstrate their utter seriousness and in anticipation of the Civil War, they launched frequent attacks on the United States military. Bloodthirstiness, which, said neighbors, exceeds all the brutality attributed to the wild Comanches, the ultimate target. So, Gerald, how open and explicit was this call for indigenous by whites in uh, for this, uh, you know, this indigenous genocide by whites in Texas? How open and public was this? Was this something that was a a common narrative at the time? Absolutely, it was. (laughs) They didn't uh, make any bones about their bloodthirstiness. And in fact, uh, you can track my footnotes, which will bring you to original sources. For example, there was a newspaper published in Texas called, quote, the white man, unquote. I found copies of it at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, about 60 miles west of Boston. So you may want to contact them and get uh, copies of those articles. But it reveals a basic fissure, a basic split in the settler class. 
On the one hand, you had settlers such as Robert Neighbors and the US federal government who thought that Indians should be placed on reservations. And ultimately that was the policy that prevailed, but it only prevailed after the settlers on the other side of the ledger who wanted uh, liquidation, extermination had done their handiwork. And I would also suggest that this was one of the many reasons for the outbreak of the US Civil War in 1861. Uh, that is to say that it was not only a war about slavery, which I think is now the prevailing opinion, although we know that there's pushback against that idea in classrooms, not least in Texas, but another reason for the outbreak of the US Civil War was that many settlers, not least in Texas, felt that Washington, the federal government, was not up to snuff when it came to taking the land of the Native Americans. And they thought that a state like Texas would be better off either A, in a new country, the so-called Confederate States of America, or B, resuming its independence, which was the case from its breakaway from Mexico in 1836 up until it joining the Union in 1845, or C, there was this other influential body of thought in, in Texas, which felt that since the indigenous population oftentimes used Mexico as a rear base by which <clears throat> Texas could be attacked, that Texas should swallow all of Mexico, not just Texas, not just California, which happened 1846 to 1848, but should swallow all of Mexico, all of Central America, uh, oust the Spanish from slave owning Cuba, uh, go all the way to the northern coast of South America. And this, this group was called the Knights of the Golden Circle, uh, which was very influential among settlers in Texas. And they did not prevail, fortunately. Those who prevailed were those who thought that Texas would be better off joining the Confederate States of America. But alas, as we all know, the Confederate States of America was defeated in the US Civil War in 1865. And the Texas enslavers lost their most valuable investment. Speaking of the bodies of enslaved Africans is one of the largest uncompensated seizures of private property in the history of the world. Billions of dollars in slave property liquidated without compensation. And that helps to explain why the Texas former enslavers were so furious, why they helped to found one of the more formidable chapters of the terrorist Ku Klux Klan, why lynching of the formerly enslaved was so murderous uh, in the state of Texas, and why one of the most rigid forms of Jim Crow or US apartheid was established post-1865 in the state of Texas. You mentioned uh, Texans, Texas's uh, plans for a kind of imperialism where they would uh, take over uh, Mexico. How much did those kind of that kind of imperial ambitions reflect the Im imperial ambitions of the United States? A lot of people don't view the United States as being an imperial country until imperial nation until 1898. But it's arguable that uh, the United States, even before it was the United States, was a very imperial nation or uh, federation or whatever you want to 
they called it at the time. So how much does that imperialism of Texas reflect the imperialism of the greater United States at that time? How much did Texas, even when it was a republic, still reflect what the United States was at that time? Well, I think that if you see indigenous nations as legitimate political bodies, you could make an argument clearly that from its inception, the United States itself, by overthrowing these indigenous polities, was embarking upon an imperialist path that reaches a crescendo in the 1890s with the overthrow of the independent state that was Hawaii, which then becomes the 50th and presumed final state of the United States in 1959, with the ouster of the tottering Spanish empire from the Philippines in the 1890s and from Cuba in Puerto Rico in the 1890s. So the argument that also could be made is that when Texas joined the United States, it added jet fuel to this imperial project because after Texas joins the United States in 1845, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that the United States then wages a war against Mexico seizing not only California, but a good deal of what is now the US Southwest, California now being the most populous state in the United States of America, by some measures, the fifth largest economy on planet Earth. And so Texas was at the vanguard of uh, that particular war. And you should realize that another impetus for the US Civil War, in addition to the perceived weakness of Washington concerning the ouster of the indigenous was Texas was also dissatisfied with Washington's policy towards Mexico because before slavery was abolished, Texas had a problem unique to slave owning states. If you look at Florida, there is water separating Bahamas from Florida that complicates the ability of the enslaved uh, to reach what was free soil beginning with the 1830s with British, the British abolishing slavery in their colony that was Bahamas. Or if you look at Bermuda due east of the Carolinas, also British controlled territory, the enslaved property had difficulty in swimming to the Bermuda. But Mexico was different. You could stroll from Texas into Mexico, it's estimated that thousands and thousands and thousands of enslaved Africans did so, a capital loss on the part of Texas enslavers that they considered to be catastrophic. They felt that Washington was laggard in terms of putting pressure on Mexico to return this enslaved property. Keep in mind that Mexico had abolished slavery circa 1829 under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero. And that abolitionist decree was the impetus for slave owners such as Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston to revolt against Mexican rule in Tejas or Texas 
and establishing the Republic of Texas, an independent country, and then affixing their names to two key cities, Austin, Texas, and Houston, Texas, from where I'm now speaking. And it was the feeling in Texas that Washington should have uh, exemplified or should have executed a more muscular policy towards Mexico when it came to the question of returning enslaved property. And since they felt that Washington was not up to the task, they decided to bolt from Washington and throw in their lot with the so-called Confederate States of America. But as noted, they wound up losing that most valuable of investments, enslaved Africans. You were mentioning a little bit ago about uh, the kind of history that is taught in Texas classrooms when it relates to the Civil War. And when you're writing about uh, Texas proclaiming genocide against the indigenous and against African-Americans, you write that even uh, mainstream Texas historian felt compelled to acknowledge that Washington never formally adopted the policy of massacre authorized by Texas, where it was permissible to kill all males 12 years and older by the 1850s, and where the vaunted Texas Rangers were little more than death squads of a type that came to characterize U.S. foreign policy by the mid-20th century. The Texas Rangers were the death squad, yet there's a baseball team named after them. (laughs) So how aware is the public in Texas of the Rangers death squad past? past, Is is the anti-critical race theory, the completely misleadingly named campaign, but is the anti-critical race theory campaign about not teaching accurate Texas history in Texas schools? Well, you... (laughs) excuse me for for twisting my tongue, but I was just rushing to say absolutely, clearly. In fact, just a few weeks ago, there was a debate at an educational policy circles in Texas as to whether or not to call the African slave trade the process of involuntary relocation, a euphemism by definition. And there have been previous debates about whether or not talking about slavery, it's much too difficult for little Johnny and little Jennifer to absorb. And that of course, not only led to this rather hysterical and demagogic campaign against so-called critical race theory, which many of the legislators and policymakers do not know how to define, but as well, it led to a real backlash against the New York Times 1619 project, uh, which you may recall came out in 2019, uh, spearheaded by now university professor, Nicole Hannah-Jones, which said that the founding era or the founding of US democracy should be traced back to the arrival of black people, not necessarily to 1776 because in actually uh, playing upon some themes that are in my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, uh, she and the Times crew were arguing that 1776 uh, basically was a revolt against incipient abolitionism in London, and also against the idea, as reflected in the Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763, that London was expressing displeasure at continuing to fight Native Americans, seizing their land and turning it over to real estate speculators like real estate speculator number one, George Washington. And so these are very 
difficult ideas for many in Texas, not only Texas, but many across the nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific to comprehend or absorb. And they are not interested necessarily in, in having a discussion or a debate about these issues. They're interested in shutting down discussion or, or debate. And that leads to the subtitle of my book, The Roots of U.S. Fascism. And you point out that with the slaveholders land grab in Texas, uh, re reflexively detractors thought this should be countervailed by snatching Canada, the prospect of which only propelled further antagonism between London and Washington. Edward Everett Hale in 1845 posed the query that is yet to be answered def defense, er, definitively, how to concert, conquer Texas before Texas conquers us. So throughout its history, even leading up to today, has the goal of Texas's political leaders been, to some extent, the conquering of the United States to make all of the U.S. more like, if not dominated by uh, Texas? Because that's a frightening consideration when we think of Texas politics, policies, and its leadership today. It certainly is. And as a resident of Texas, I would not wish Texas upon any state, least of all uh, Illinois, least of all California, least of all New York State. But keep in mind that when Texas comes into existence as an independent state in 1836, the idea of the leaders of that republic was to challenge the United States of America, particularly to challenge the United States of America in concert with foreign powers, particularly France, which was a kind of mentor of independent Texas. Texas had the idea that it should be in the vanguard a further denuding Mexico by winning the rush to the Pacific, beating the United States and seizing California, which would then be a beachhead in terms of independent Texas, then strengthening itself against the United States of America and then extending its remit into the Pacific by taking Hawaii before the United States does in the 1890s and then making its way to the a dreamily lucrative market that was China, and that is China, and that was and is India. So what happens, of course, is that Texas could not stand the pressure from worldwide abolitionism, not only abolitionism in Mexico, and to repeat, Texas had a unique problem in having, having, a, having an abolitionist nation on their doorstep. Speaking of Mexico, Florida did not have this issue, nor did Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, the Carolinas, Virginia, et cetera. Not only an abolitionist nation, but an abolitionist nation whose closest comrade, perhaps, was revolutionary Haiti. Revolutionary Haiti, you may recall, 1791 to 1804 with the Haitian Revolution, a successful revolt of the enslaved, a successful revolt of unpaid workers, overthrows slavery, sets up an independent nation that then allies with abolitionists in London. And that combination finds friendship with Mexico. That is one of the reasons why Texas crawled into the Union in 1845, because it could not withstand the pressure from worldwide abolitionists, particularly abolitionists London. 
However, just as a footnote, uh, keep in mind that when Congress voted to accept Texas as a state, there probably should have been a vote of a supermajority, but it was only a simple majority. And that may become relevant as soon as next year, because at the Republican Party convention in Houston just a few days ago, the party voted to put a referendum before the voters of Texas for Texas to secede once again, uh, setting up an independent country. Now, I know there are probably those in your audience will say, I hope they win. Good riddance to bad rubbish, but not so fast. Number one, I think that Texas would then reclaim its longtime ambition of challenging the United States. It probably would forge an alliance with reactionaries in the hemisphere. Probably its first embassy would be opened in Paraguay. And if Bolsonaro, the Trump of the tropics, wins in the Brazilian elections, the second embassy would be opened there after October 2022 when you have the Brazilian elections. And then, speaking personally, Texas has the largest Black population in the United States of America because of its energetic uh, ambitions with regard to enslaving Africans. And as a Black person living in Texas, with Texas perhaps also being on the cusp of fascism, I shudder to think of what would befall the Black population of Texas if Texas becomes independent. And like a, an oil spill or a virus, I don't think you would be able to keep that from spreading to the so-called lower 48. That is to say, as far as Illinois, New York, or California. You mentioned that Texas has the largest African-American population of any state in the United States. But still, that proportion of African-Americans in Texas only constitutes a little under 12% of the overall population. Is that enough to influence what you call Texas's evolution, or by extension, the evolution of the United States as a whole? Well, if you mean by that, if the Black population by itself <laughs> could forestall uh, Texas becoming more muscular in this reactionary politics up to and including fascism, the answer is no. The Black population, uh, the Black population was not able by itself to overthrow uh, slavery in Texas. It needed the help of the U.S. military, <laughs> not to mention diplomatic assistance from Haiti and Britain. Uh, it was, the black population was not sufficient to overthrow US Jim Crow in the 20th century, that is to say US apartheid. It needed the help of people outside of Texas and outside of the United States as well. And so th that, that's one of my worries right now because uh, since the erosion of Jim Crow beginning with the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954, You've seen the Black leadership uh, have oftentimes broken their ties with forces in the international community, which has been our saving grace in recent centuries. And it makes me quite nervous and anxious about uh, what is to come in the 21st century. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn, who returns to our program to talk about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. You write that ultimately capital flight in the form of enslaved Africans scurried to Mexico in the thousands and says 
Scholar James David Nichols, quote, in a very real sense, African-American runaways from slavery began driving Mexico and Anglo-Texans toward a conflict. And you add Texas and Dixie versus a Washington thought to be suspect, too. In some ways, the U.S. victorious war of aggression over Mexico is a catastrophic success for Washington, reanimating the sectional divide over slavery in the territories, especially in California, where Texans wielded early influence, leading to the unsatisfying compromise of 1850, a capitulation to enslavers, in essence, which further strained sectionalism to the point of rupture about a decade later. So to you, what explains this capitulation? And did the U.S., uh, did it even have a choice? Because you also add that propelling this cycle of violence was not only the racism that generated land grabs and the desire for enslaved labor, it was also the lack of confidence in the U.S. itself, as exemplified by the flight beyond then-U.S. borders by the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, the anti-Republican animus in Canada, backed by their uh, potent London allies, slave revolts, the continuing uprisings of Comanches and their allies. So did U.S. capitulation with slavers and slave states reflect the lack of faith in the stability or sustainability of the United States? Is that why the U.S. capitulated to Texans' slavers? Well, keep in mind that slavery was not just an issue of Dixie. Uh, that is to say, you had uh, slave ships, uh, ships to transport the enslaved uh, from uh, Africa to North America that oftentimes were built in Maine or built in Maryland. You had uh, investments in cotton, which was a major commodity in Texas. Those investments uh, sprung oftentimes from New York City. And that helps to explain why during the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, uh, Dixie had quite a stronghold in New York City, of all places. That helps to explain the uh, so-called anti-draft riots, uh, which was an anti-Black pogrom in Manhattan, circa 1863, oftentimes spearheaded, I'm afraid to say, by uh, Irish Americans who felt that they would be conscripted to join the Union Army in order to fight to free Black people. Uh, that's something they wanted no part of. In fact, uh, you can still find an excerpt from the movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Gangs of New York. You can find it gratis online that is a graphic depiction of that pogrom against uh, Black people in uh, lower Manhattan. So Washington, was not as strong as it might have appeared to be. And then there was quite a bit of sympathy outside of Texas to the quote problem, unquote, that Texans faced in confronting the Comanches because the Comanches were probably the most militant and fearsome fighting force of the indigenous population, uh, perhaps surpassing the metal of the Lakota or the Sioux uh, due north in the Dakotas. And they were also accompanied in that category by the Apaches uh, who were on the western border of Texas bleeding into New Mexico. And oftentimes these indigenous were joined by a unique indigenous force, uh, that is to say the Caddo, C-A-D-D-O, who had a, an interlocking directorate uh, with black people. And all of these indigenous groupings oftentimes found sanctuary uh, south of the border in Mexico, which they could then once again stroll across the border 
to attack the settlers and stroll back to sanctuary in New Mexico. And that issue, there were many in the United States who were sympathetic with the settlers with regard to confronting that issue. And then you mentioned in, in passing uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Now, given the fact that the Mormons, as we call them today, are considered a bulwark of conservatism and conservative values in the GOP and the Republican Party in particular, it may come as a surprise to many in your audience that that was not the case in the 1850s, particularly in 1857, when there was a virtual war uh, between the Church of Latter-day Saints and the US government. Now this has impact because with the US military uh, fighting the Church of Latter-day Saints in Utah, Northwest of Texas, that was that, that meant fewer U.S. troops uh, who could assist the Texas settlers in terms of combating the Native Americans uh, and rebellious Africans. And so, in that context, as your quotation suggested, the war against Mexico, 1846 to 1848, with the United States walking away with California and Arizona, New Mexico, and a good deal of of the US Southwest was a catastrophic success because what that meant was that the folks in the slave owning territory said, aha, uh, this is more room to expand slavery. And you had folks ultimately represented by US President Abraham Lincoln, who at least in the early stages were not necessarily opposed to slavery, but they were opposed to the expansion of slavery and the enslavers, perhaps understandably, because of the aforementioned factors, they overestimated their strength within the US Union. They overestimated the sympathy that they would enjoy within the US Union, and they decided to go for it all and have a rebellion to not only perpetuate slavery forevermore, but overthrow the Lincoln government in uh, 1861, 1865. And of course, they failed wound up losing all, all meaning their most valuable property, enslaved Africans, which then, which then uh, pitched them in, into this, uh, this morass of terrorism as embodied in the Ku Klux Klan as they sought to exact revenge against their former property. Because as noted, the seizure of property that is to say, the liquidation of the financial interests in Africans was the largest uncompensated expropriation of private property, one of the largest in world history, certainly the, one of the largest uh, in the history of North America. And it led to this terrorism and ultimately led to this unsustainable system of Jim Crow whereby the enslavers sought to wall off the black population from the rest of the United States. That is to say, if there was a black witness in court, you had to swear in on a different Bible. If your pet died, they had to be buried in a segregated cemetery. In some factories, if there were black workers there, you, had to look, you couldn't look out of the same window as those who were non-black. And that system was ultimately not only ludicrous, but unsustainable and ultimately fell victim uh, in the 1950s to forces of modernization. You also point out that as Jeff Jefferson Davis struggled to reach Texas, the Confederate president struggled to reach Texas in 1865 for the rebels last stand in conjunction with 
French-backed Mexico, Major General Gordon Granger approached Galveston, Texas with a Union force thought to be comprised of upwards of 75% Negro troops. The composition of this force made sense not only because, as the Spanish had discovered decades earlier, these troops were more determined than most to fight, a quality that was desperately required in light of the depth of the challenge. But as well, they were ideal to vouchsafe the order issued on June 19th, reiterating the legality of abolition or what became to be known as Juneteenth for Davis and his fellow desperados. They thought that they could rally the erstwhile lost cause from their new residents in Mexico, then retake Texas and the Southwest. And as one student bluntly put it, they could launch raids and continue to kill Yankees, Jefferson Davis's loose plan when he fled, or alternatively akin to Texas, a Texan slaveholder Frank McMullen, one could flee all the way to Brazil and form New Texas in a slaveholding empire that could challenge Washington diplomatically, perhaps even militarily. If the Union forces had failed on Juneteenth, would the Civil War then have continued? Was the war not over at the signing of the Treaty of Appomattox, but at the Juneteenth battle in Galveston? Well, I would say that Appomattox, April 1865 in Virginia, when General Robert E. Lee turns over his sword to the Union military, that many in Texas in particular saw that at most as a pause before reloading. June 19th, 1865, when General Granger shows up in Galveston, Texas, that uh, they also saw that as a pause before reloading because as your comments suggested, the idea was that since France, one of Texas's closest comrades had seized on United States preoccupation with civil war in the 1860s to take over Mexico. That's the origins of the Mexican-American holiday of today, Cinco de Mayo, which marks a significant victory of Mexican forces over the French occupiers circa 1862. And so the idea was that not only with Texas enslavers, flee into French-occupied Mexico with their valuable property in in tow, the Mexican puppet emperor, Maximilian, would reverse the abolitionist decree of a few decades earlier that had led to Texas secession from Mexico in 1836 under Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston et al. And that uh, Mexico could then become a rear base by which not only could slavery continue, but then the war could continue against the U.S. government uh, with the backing of France. But what happens is that they did not necessarily get buy-in from the Mexican population with regard to the scheme. And by June 19, 1867, the Mexican population had risen up and overthrown the Maximilian French puppet dictatorship. And June 19th, 1867, I argue, brings us closer to real abolition. Because keep in mind that even after June 19th, 1867, there were scattered cases of enslavement of Africans continuing. Indeed, even today in 2022, uh, slavery to a lesser degree exists in the United States. It's oftentimes 
uh, passes under the euphemism of, quote, wage theft, unquote, uh, whereby uh, people work and don't get paid. And you've seen stories, I'm sure, about these sweatshops in Southern California, mostly featuring uh, Asian, Latino workers, where the workers are not only not paid, but oftentimes not allowed to leave the premises, which is this kind of replica of the plantations that produce slavery and sugar and other commodities. Now they're producing uh, clothes, for example, fast fashion, as it's oftentimes called in the United States today. So this question of Texas and the question that you mentioned a moment or two ago, of whether or not uh, the United States could conquer Texas or Texas could conquer the United States, it's still a live and open question as represented not only by this demagogy about critical race theory, about Texas's demagogy concerning open carry of weapons and this rather uh, ridiculous interpretation of the Second Amendment of the US Constitution with regard to circumscribing of women, women's reproductive freedom where Texas has been in, in the vanguard even before the, the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi. So uh, I would urge and encourage your audience to pay careful and close attention to Texas because I'm afraid to say where Texas is right now may be where the rest of the country is headed. That's the most frightening part of, uh, I shouldn't say that, that is one of the many frightening things that you bring up in your book. You write that of, of the post-Civil War era, what seemed to be a rosy dawn of freedom was swiftly drowned in death as Texas solidified its already extant role as the continental epicenter of counter-revolution. Between 1865 and 1868, as the reborn nation was struggling to solidify a new birth of freedom, Texas led the nation in total number of homicides. Historian Fawn Brody, in her study of abolitionist hero Thaddeus Stevens, concluded morosely that at that point, Texas Negroes were were worse off in that state than any other. Did life become worse for African Americans in Texas after slavery was abolished, after the war, the Civil War was over and slavery was eventually abolished and the war finally ended on Juneteenth? Well, I can't say that Black people were worse off post-1865, but I can say that it was a different kind of hell. In fact, you may be familiar with this aphorism coming out of Texas post-1865 where a union, union general was quoted for the proposition that if he owned hell in Texas, he'd live in hell and rent out Texas. Now, was Texas worse than hell? Well, certainly it was a living hell uh, for the indigenous population and the black population. And sadly enough, I'm afraid to say that the black population would have benefited from better leadership because what happens during this inglorious period following the US Civil War is that you have many black soldiers who were felt indebted to the United States government. And so they become the spearhead in wars against Native Americans, the Buffalo Soldiers, oftentimes uh, sung by Bob Marley of Jamaica and those who followed him. And they 
were really, a, I, I, I hesitate to call it a death squad, but the, certainly the kind of roughhouse tactics that they used against Native Americans is one of the most despicable chapters in, in, in Black history. And what's even worse is that it does not do them any favors. What I mean is, at the same time that the Buffalo soldiers were routing the indigenous population in West Texas, the black population, which is heavily centered in East Texas, was being routed in turn by the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist forces. I mean, and being routed, uh, there's one episode that I described, which is not atypical, where a black man is shot through the head upon entering a store and not removing his hat. And so because of this apparent violation of contemporary etiquette, he pays with his life. And that bespeaks uh, the worthlessness in a sense of black life at that time. And, and keep in mind as well, that there's another story that needs to be told uh, with regard to what's happening in that part of the United States at that moment. Uh, recall that Indian territory, what is now Oklahoma, was established on the northern border of Texas. Uh, that is to say, it was an attempt by the United States to tie down Texas's ambitions to challenge the United States by putting disgruntled indigenous people who had been ousted from their homeland in Georgia, speaking of the Cherokees and also speaking of the Creeks, the Choctaw, the Seminoles, all dumped into Indian territory. And many of them, particularly the Cherokees that emulated the settlers by becoming enslavers of Africans. And so what happens is that many of the Cherokees in particular, they fight with the Confederacy and thereby have to pay a heavier price than most enslavers by giving up both land and also uh, giving up the land to the black population as well, which leads, to, at least for a brief moment, to a kind of enrichment of the black population. However, you may also recall what happens in 1921 with the Tulsa massacre, where one of the richest black communities in the United States in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is subjected to massacre by settlers who are envious of their wealth coming out of this this uh, deal with the Native Americans, and they wound up losing everything and wound up being driven further into poverty. Many of them fleeing to the four corners of North America. And so it's understandable why you would ask this question of whether or not uh, many Black people might have been worse off uh, with the abolition of slavery. But all things considered, I have to say, despite the Tulsa massacre, despite lynchings, despite being murdered for mundane violations of social etiquette, I'd have to answer no to that question. And you also point out that Indian territory, as in quotes, reflected the dialectic of radical reform versus reaction in a manner as profound as its southern neighbor, Texas. We're talking about Oklahoma being the Indian territory. One analyst has observed that what became Oklahoma at that juncture had more bandits, horse thieves, counterfeiters, whiskey peddlers, and train robbers per square mile than any other place in the United States. It wasn't uncommon for travelers to disappear and never be heard from again. At the same time, black deputy marshals in the Indian Territory had the authority to arrest whites and defend their lives in doing so. They had the authority to kill whites if the situation called for it, which was unique for the United States at the time. Nevertheless, the allies of the Negro liquidated 
uh, Indian Territory, then by 1907 established the state of Oklahoma, whose initial bills imposed Jim Crow. The Sooner State has been described as resembling a meat cleaver lurking above Texas, its blade dripping with the blood of the Red River, but the impact threat, uh, implicit threat of the foregoing rise of Negroes tended to dissipate after Indian Territory was largely dissolved. So why was this essentially lawless area the perfect site for the implementation of Jim Crow? Well, first of all, keep in mind that Indian Territory was one of the few territories under Washington's jurisdiction, ostensibly, that was occupied in no small measure by Confederate forces. The last Confederate military officer to surrender officially in June 1865 was Stan Watie, W-A-T-I-E, uh, who was a Cherokee leader. And so what happens is that there was probably more dislocation in Indian territory following the end of the Civil War than any other part of the United States of America, perhaps even more so than in Texas, uh, because of this bitter contestation between A, the Confederates and the Federals, and B, the contestation between the indigenous and the settlers. So what happens as in Indian territory is that the indigenous are still, still have jurisdiction and a certain amount of sovereignty in an Indian territory. You might've seen that uh, there was a recent case in the US Supreme Court that sought to circumscribe uh, Indian sovereignty. This is in 2022 and certainly there was even more Indian sovereignty in uh, 1872. And as a result, you saw that in the sovereign Indian lands, uh, they were more willing, particularly, I, I, I must say, the non-Cherokee and the non-Choctaw, because the Cherokee and Choctaw were the major slave owners, to even have a, a Black American uh, law enforcement officers who could then enforce the law against settlers or against others. But alas, uh, this was seen as unsustainable <laughs> by many in Texas. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the University of Oklahoma and their mascot is the Sooners. And what that refers to, and you can go online and see a film of this, in 1889, or recreations, I should say. In 1889, Indian territory is opened up for settlement. And the Sooners were the European settlers who jumped the queue, who jumped the line and rushed to establish their grub stake before the starting gun was sounded. And then that led inevitably to Oklahoma joining the United States in 1907. And the settlers sought to reverse what they saw was this dangerous social experiment. For example, of black law enforcement officers arresting, perhaps even killing Euro-American settlers, which is one of the reasons why one of the first decrees in, in, uh, in um, the state of Oklahoma uh, was uh, decrees on mandating uh, Jim Crow. And uh, even today, as you know, uh, Oklahoma is still competing with Texas, not only on the football gridiron, but also in terms of 
who can be most aggressive in circumscribing women's reproductive freedom, for example, who could be most aggressive in terms of enforcing uh, anti-critical race theory demagogy, for example, who could be most aggressive in terms of loosening gun safety laws so that you can stroll into your Starbucks with an A-15 assault weapon. Uh, this is the sad state of affairs in this part of the United States. And to repeat, people should pay close and careful attention because our nightmare today in the Southwest might be your nightmare tomorrow. One last question for you, Gerald, although I could talk to you for another two or three hours about your book, because this really is an incredible book. One last question for you. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn about his newest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. The Roots of U.S. Fascism. And one thing I just want to mention real quick is that this is the fifth consecutive year that Gerald has appeared on our show, and you can find all of our interviews with him, and you should go back and listen to every one of them at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Horn, and that's H-O-R-N-E. So you point out how uh, Roy Cullen of Houston was recognized as probably the richest man in the world. His mother had moved from South Carolina to Texas after the family's plantation was immolated. His grandfather fought in the Secession War against uh, Mexico. His competitor in this dubious race for filthy lucre, that is oil, H.L. Hunt, had a father who fought alongside the Dixie Secessionists in 1861. He was often dubbed the richest man in the world. The other members of this Texas oil troika, Clinton or Clint Murchison, like the other two, had a pension for employing Negro servants, a throwback to slavery, perhaps. Virtually every radical right-wing movement in the United States during the 1950s was propped up by these Texas oilmen, including virulent anti-Semitism and the shenanigans of Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. And jumping ahead, by 19, you write that by 1963, the phone number of Hunt's son was found in the packet of Jack Ruby, assassin of the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy. Naturally, Hunt was briefed about the findings of the investigation into these foul crimes before Earl Warren himself, the titular head of the commission uh, and chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Hunt's putrid spewing was broadcast on 500 radio stations at its height, at its height which aided his, uh, his food sidelines, which tainted, was dumped in black communities. Even William F. Buckley, scion of yet another Texas oil fortune and patron state of modern conservatism felt that Hunt gave capitalism a bad name. Not only did Murchison back McCarthy, he regarded him as a brother. Cullen was not just a conservative, but a donor to the leading Dixiecrat and ultra-conservative candidate for president in 1948, J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. And Hunt's uh, maunderings uh, were often filtered through the proliferating Christian anti-communist networks. So, is there a history, then, of Texas oil fueling U.S. fascism? Is, is opposition to fossil fuel, especially, you know, fossil fuel from Texas, opposition to U.S. fascism? I'm glad you raised that question, because as we speak, an issue roiling relations between Mexico and the United States, but I detect the invisible hand of Texas in this escapade, is that Washington is challenging Mexico's state control of its oil industry, which goes back to President Cárdenas in the 1930s. Given the fact that we know that when you had 
the overthrow of the Mossadegh regime in Iran in 1953, that oil was at issue. We know that with regard to Venezuela, one of the issues that is a sticking point with regard to Venezuela and the United States is the fact that Venezuela has some of the largest oil reserves uh, in the world. And under the previous president, Hugo Chavez, uh, there was more state control of that industry. And we also know, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, because he bears an eerie resemblance physically and otherwise to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who in relative terms, I would say is as reactionary as a man who gave his name to an epic, I'm speaking of McCarthyism, uh, embodied in Senator Joseph McCarthy. And you mentioned Senator J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who ran a campaign for president in 1948 on an explicit platform of racism, white supremacy, and won four or five states. He was then a dissident Democrat. He then defected to the Republican Party. He was in the vanguard in that respect because recall that in 1965, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, that in a sense is a Magna Carta for not only black voters, but voters from language minority backgrounds as well, such as getting ballots in Spanish or Vietnamese or Putonghua in the language of China, et cetera, that with that legislation, you saw a mass defection from the Democratic Party, theretofore the party uh, of the South, uh, they defected mass to Richard Nixon's Re Republican Party uh, by 1968. And so that brings us, of course, to today, where now we may be on the verge of a unique form of US fascism. We may get a glimpse of that as early as November 2022, assuming that the Republicans reclaim the House and the Senate to go along with their stranglehold over the US Supreme Court. And we all know that sooner rather than later, Agent Orange himself, Donald J. Trump, will be announcing to run for president. And it would be difficult, I'm afraid to say, to bet against him in November 2024. He's already pledged, and see the article recently in Axios, A-X-I-O-S, to engage in a massive purge of the civil servant workforce, what he would refer to as the deep state, not only the Justice Department and the State Department, but other federal agencies. The kind of fate that has befallen Black Americans in terms of a la Breonna Taylor in Louisville having authorities burst <laughs> into your residence, uh, guns blazing with you lying dead in the aftermath or being executed because of a mi ma minor traffic violation in the front page of the New York Times, January, July 25th, 2022. Uh, there is an article about the so-called constitutional sheriffs who feel that the election of November 2020 was stolen they're not just from Texas, but of course they have a stronghold in Texas. Uh, they also express this idea of them being the ultimate embodied embodiment of the constitution in their county, 
which means that they are the law, not necessarily the Congress in Washington. And so you see this rather strange odyssey of the United States uh, devolving from states' rights, which was the mantra of the 1960s when segregationist governors like George Wallace of Alabama said that the sovereign state of Alabama did not have to obey these pointed headed bureaucrats in Washington. Now you have county rights <laughs> where the sheriffs who carry guns, by the way, uh, unlike George Wallace, as far as we know, and already uh, have been visiting uh, polling booths uh, during elections, which can be very intimidating uh, to many voters. So uh, we are perhaps on the verge of a new dimension of US reality and politics. And that is one of the reasons why I urge and encourage your audience to not neglect what's going on in Texas, because to repeat, our nightmare today may be your nightmare tomorrow. Gerald, I cannot thank you enough for again being on our show. And we look forward to your next work. What is the next book you're going to be you're working on right now? The city of Washington, D.C. That is to say, the people, as opposed to the, the high government in Capitol Hill and the White House. The title is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1918 to 1978. And when do you think that's going to be released? Next year. All right. Well, then it's going to be six straight years that you'll be coming on our show because we'll definitely have you back on the show. Contact us whenever you have any work coming out. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Gerald. Thank you so much for showing as much support as you have had in the past for This Is Hell. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Take care, Gerald. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. So I will be contacting Gerald shortly about his new book, Revolting Capital on Washington, D.C. And uh, one of the weird things that I found with the election, we had a lot of people on this show uh, who were very afraid of the possibility for voter intimidation in November during the uh, midterm elections. And then I didn't see any news stories about it. So I was like, well, maybe our list, you know, our guests were, you know, they were, you know, exaggerating how big of a threat the voter intimidation was and that there wasn't any real voter intimidation reports that I heard on, you know, the night of the midterms or the day afterwards. And then just in the last week, I saw that an article in The New York Times where they were talking about how there were a whole bunch of incidents of voter intimidation. And I was like, well, how did I miss that in the news? Why is this not being why was this not reported until like six weeks after seven weeks after the fact? So. Uh, I, I'm, I still haven't looked it up enough, but I, I think there were a lot of acts of voter intimidation, but maybe just didn't make the news because they were in rural areas. I, I, I just don't know. Pretending to know what I'm talking about, see, since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from the great, great historian Gerald Horde. Horn was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. It is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com. 
Just real quick, Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and we'll get to uh, uh, listeners' answers in just a couple of minutes. This week's question from hell is the proverbial worst gift that you can get during the holiday season is a lump of coal, but who knows where to find a lump of coal anymore? In these modern times, what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays? Dan, will have the rest of your answers in just a moment. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. You can still do it at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us or you can email us thisishellradio at gmail.com and uh, we will read your answer on air. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, which is in not very long from now. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that deepening debt, can you subscribe? <laughs> can you? You can. You can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams uh, every Thursday. And this podcast shortly after at the uh, same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On this week's Patreon, it's the first part of a two-parter on everything we have learned this year on This Is Hell. Well, at least it's everything I learned. You may have got something different from this week's shows, or from this year's shows, sorry. In fact, by speaking with listeners who drop by for our weekly meet and greet, uh, that's really a drink and think. This Is Hell office hours, which happen every Wednesday, rain or shine, although they were disrupted by a global pandemic. I know from speaking with everyone who dropped by this year that we all learned something different from our guests. So this week and next week on Patreon, I will share with you everything I learned from our guests this year. If you or some friend or family member of yours ever wonders why do they call their show This Is Hell, what you will hear on Patreon the next two weeks answers that question. Also on Patreon, Well, we're not certain at this point uh, what interview we will be sharing, uh, but we are still looking for our conversation with Gigi Sohn, who has been in the news of late. Republicans are blocking President Biden's nomination of her to the FCC Board of Commissioners, as Fox News is calling her a radical, which means she's likely a centrist liberal, which to Fox News is a radical. But the only way to hear... All that is through supporting This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, you not only get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. That's like two years of additional This Is Hell with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is unavailable anywhere else online. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. So, Dan, let's get listeners' answers to the rest of the listeners' answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, basically, what's the worst possible gift you can receive during the holiday season? Yeah, what's a real bad gift? Over at Facebook. <laughs> like yours, what's a real bad gift? That should have been the question from hell. That's I was, right. I was well, being, pretty much was. I was uh, being verbose in the Sebastian Vooper style. A little florid. SLS <laughs> says far worse than a lump of coal is a lump of Bob Dole. And over <laughs> that's a, a lump lo- of that's Bob a, Dole. That's a real callback to the 1990s. Yeah, he's probably dead in the ground right now. <laughs> I'm assuming he is. I hope he is because he died a few years ago. There unless it's go. zombie Bob Dole. Zombole. Uh <laughs> Over at Twitter, Wagstank says gift card to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Have Frack- you ever been to a Cracker Barrel? Yeah, sure. 
I got a beating heart in my chest, don't I? <laughs> I went into Cracker Barrel once, and what I was surprised about was the uh, lack of, uh, well, crackers in the barrel, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's a, we'll get them. That's not truth in advertising. <laughs> yeah. We'll have a lawsuit. Yeah. Frack Lou Elmo answers, attention from in-laws. <laughs> Lawrence C. answers, cold turkey. Twitter user Chundercat answers NPR merch. (laughs) Ryan L. says, hand-me-downs. Unless it's a valuable family heirloom, nobody wants to unwrap a box under the tree and find your old junk inside. Save that does-anybody-want-my-old-blank conversation for after the holidays. This is a time of giving, not dumping. They add. Uh, Danger Cart 66 says another set of wispy cube or <laughs> another set of whiskey cubes, a sculpture of human teeth, a pre-owned copy of the Wild Hog soundtrack, and then um, there's sort of an Im- image of a disappointed-looking guy from a video game. Yeah, looks like he's hitting his head up against a wall. It might be from Grand Theft Auto. I don't know. Uh, oh, that's a good guess. Yeah, and then uh, user Third Cloud answers. A Trump digital trading card, M dash, worst gift. Uh, and then finally, one got in under the wire. The color yellow answers natural gas, in quotes. <laughs> Gross. Pretty nasty. Uh, that's methane, all right. The answers I like, uh, for, well, first of all, about the NPR answer, we used to get grief from people uh, because, uh, well, we used to. <laughs> We used to give people grief. I should reword this. We used to give NPR grief about how they had tote bags. I always had tote bags, and we always would joke about on the air that they had tote bags. And then WNUR started giving away as a premium gift tote bags, and we used to razz and, and rank uh, WNUR for using tote bags, and now we have our own tote bags. Oh, so did we finally we give in? Yeah, we did Now we're it. part of the tote bag set. Uh, I know, I know. It makes me feel you know. sad. The answers I liked most were Brianna M. saying uh, shares in Twitter. That's what she believes is the worst gift you can get over the holiday season. Chris H. saying FTX tokens. I didn't know there were actual tokens involved. Uh, Warren L. saying radioactive chunk of concrete from a decommissioned nuclear power plant. Nick E. saying Harry and David Dryerlint gift pack, which we know you don't want because, as we learned from Michael Hawthorne, uh, last week, uh, Dryerland is full of PFAS, and now whenever I empty my dryer, I have to wash my hands because I'm freaked out about the fact that I'm going to die from testicular cancer, some sort of kidney disease. Will A saying a green card? Question mark. Who the F wants to come to America unless you like watching dumpster fires from the front row? Well, at least you're in the front row. Uh, watching it from the mezzanine, not as great. Jack B saying peeps Bitcoin. Which is disturbing. Wojcik R. saying Lindsey Graham branded suppositories. I felt weird telling Lindsey Gorey what a suppository was on air yesterday, but hey, somebody had to do it. Kim G. saying fruitcake made of those razor blade apples from Halloween. Chundercat. I did like NPR merch. That was a good answer. And waste of taxpayer money saying a gift card to Cracker Barrel. So any of those really stand out to you, Dan? I just like saying Chundercat. <laughs> I do like saying Chundercat, and I like saying that the worst possible gift you can ever give somebody for the holidays is NPR merch. So Chundercat, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Contact us and tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get it in the mail to you post-haste. But because of the 
holiday season. It's probably not going to show up until early January. Uh, my answer to this week's question from Mel, what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays? My answer is stuff, as in stuff that you need to find a place to keep said stuff permanently. It's it's taken a long time, and a lot of holidays holidays getting stuff uh, for me to realize that I really, I really don't want stuff, and that stuff, it just never goes away. Unlike food or alcohol or weed or even clothing that you can actually wear on a regular basis, stuff just doesn't really have any real purpose except for just looking at it every so often and saying, wow, that's really cool stuff. I I mean, I always find socks to be a great gift because who the hell wants to go to the store for the sole purpose of buying socks, for God's sake? That's why I uh, told both of my secret Santas, neither of whom live here in Chicago, to either give me socks or just get me local food that I cannot find here in Chicago. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. We really appreciate it. Dan, next week, what are the interviews we will be playing during the next three episodes of the Best of This Is Hell 2022 edition? Monday from July, philosopher Kate Mann wrote the article, is it Cat Mann? Kate. Kate Mann wrote the article, Criminalizing Pregnant People, a Brief Retrospective. When pregnant people's bodies are policed, the most vulnerable and marginalized among us suffer disproportionately, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. I can see why you would think that was cat, because there's two Ts, but that's just a typo. That's a typo. That's a typo. (laughs) (laughs) All right, on Tuesday from September, Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, from the uh, how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world. That was one of my very favorites from this year as well. Yeah, I'm going to tune in. Wednesday from October, Brian Muir, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South and co-host on Brazil 24-7, Brian was on to discuss his most recent writing. At the time, media spins Lula victory as defeat, which was posted just before Lula da Silva won the Brazilian presidential runoff over incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And everybody loves our correspondent in Sao Sao Paulo, but I believe he has moved now. Maybe he's moved to Recife. I can't remember where he's moved to. Hey, he's somewhere in Brazil. Thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Voper, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff for all the moments of truth this year. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for every week in Rotten History in 2022. And thanks to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston for all of the work that they have done over the last year. We really appreciate it. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishow when we will be sharing part one of our two-part Patreon series featuring everything we, or at least I, learned on This Is Hell in 2022, as well as our interview with, hopefully, our interview with Gigi Sohn. The This Is Hell Holiday Office Party returns on the winter solstice, Wednesday, December 21st. That's today, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Is your office not, office not having a holiday office party this year? Make the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party your holiday office party. Work online and don't have a place to have a holiday office party? Make our party your party. Not crazy about all your coworkers, but would love to celebrate the holidays with 
Some of them make our party your party. Will you, you be in Chicago visiting for the holidays? Bring your friends and family to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. And each and every person who attends will get a special gift from your friends here at This Is Hell. A hardback copy of the satirical and informative and somewhat disturbing book, E is for Erotica. That's the return of the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party for the first time since before the pandemic. This Wednesday, December 21st, on the winter solstice, which is today beginning at 6 p.m. in at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. We hope to see you there. Happy Saturnalia to everybody. That started on uh, the 17th, and I believe that goes through Christmas. I can't remember when it actually ends, so if you are somebody who celebrates Saturnalia, you can do that with us uh, this evening at the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. And I do know that there are a lot of people who are in from out of town. Uh, past producer on our show, Dr. Chris Bigosinski, will be joining us. I know... Uh, uh, Lindsay Gorey will be joining us. I believe Alexander Jerry will be there, and I hope all of you are there with us as well. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.